الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وبعد so as uh, our brother Abdul Qadir mentioned this is maybe the 11th or 12th lecture of these six lectures and uh, I need to apologize first of all that I'll have to end the series probably with this lecture <coughs> initially we started during the first week of January it was the hope that you know, I would do all these chapters of six from purity to, you know, usually the last chapter of Fiqh is about the rules and regulations dealing with the Islamic judge in terms of his, how he deals with witnesses and uh, his rulings and so forth. And of course, dealing with everything in between from prayer, fasting, zakah, funerals, hajj, uh, buying and selling jihad, uh, the hudu, the punishment, uh, marriage and divorce. Uh, freeing of slaves and all the different subjects which are normally in the books of stuff. But I found that due to uh, uh, my illness and then of course my traveling, uh, we really haven't been able to move so much as I had hoped. So now we have, I guess, been eight months and this is we're just into the chapter of uh, fasting. So as a result, I'll probably end the series this week if we finish fasting. If we don't finish fasting this week, then I'll do a lecture next week to finish fasting. Then at least that way we did the major uh, pillars, uh, acts of worship that a person has to do, and that is of course the uh, prayer and the purity which is prior to that, and also uh, the funeral prayers which is usually attached to that, and the zakat or the charity, and the fasting, which every Muslim should know is these matters of the religion. And then of course some other brother, either brother Abdul Qadir or brother Idris, We'll pick up the next series of lectures, and inshallah ta'ala, you know, maybe in the fall time, when my time sort of becomes a little bit free, I'll try to either continue with the fifth lectures if the brothers and sisters want that, or we can discuss, you know, another topic uh, for a number of weeks, like uh, the seal of the Prophet of his life history, or something like that. With that in mind, we need to uh, begin with uh, today's lecture. Of course, we know that uh, fasting is one of the pillars of Islam, fasting in month Ramadan. As the Prophet said, Islam is built upon five pillars. And then he mentioned the testimony of faith that there is none worthy of worship except for Allah. And then Muhammad is his messenger. And the establishing of the prayer and the giving of the zakah, which is the obligatory charity. And also the fasting of Ramadan. And the fifth pillar is to make Hajj to Mecca uh, once to Allah's house in Mecca once in uh, one's lifetime at least if he has the means for that journey. So the, the fast is a very important matter of the religion. Indeed, some of the scholars have said that whoever forsakes the uh, fast willfully, in other words, the month of Ramadan comes that he willfully does not want to fast, uh, not due to any uh, excuse that he might have in the Sharia, like illness and the other excuses which we'll investigate today. But he willfully does that. Some scholars say that you can excuse him of being a hypocrite. Even though there, you know, he might, there's not a definite proof that he's a hypocrite. He could be a very great sinner in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the point is that this sin is of such a great magnitude that it's as if, you know what I'm saying, that this man is on the edge between faith and unbelief, between Iman and hypocrisy, Nifaq. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an has said 
or you who believe fasting has been written upon you, it means obligated upon you, just like it was to those before you, so that you may become pious. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that He has written or obligated the fast of Ramadan upon us, just like He did to the previous people before us. And that they were also obligated to fast uh, this month. Uh, and the reason behind this is that we may achieve taqwa. Now, of course, I'd like to talk about the obligation of Ramadan. You know, uh, this verse shows us that the previous people, the previous scriptures, were obligated to fast from Ramadan. But if you look at the fast of the Christians today, they now fast for 40 days. And the reason why they fast an extra 10 days is because uh, one of their uh, kings, or Caesars, you know, uh, committed a sin. And as his penance for his sin, as the expiation for his sin, the Pope made him fast an extra 10 days. So it became their practice to fast 40 days. Likewise, what they did was, they also removed the fast from uh, the, uh, uh, like the lunar calendar, you know what I'm saying? And they, they followed the boys, the pagans, that have a solar calendar, and removed the fast to the spring. And now they get they fast at the time, like usually in March, they call it Lent and so forth. And also if you look at the fast now, they really don't fast like the way we fast. In the sense is that they do not forsake eating and drinking and um, having sex, you know, during those hours with one's wife. Uh, and likewise forsaking evil speech or evil deeds, which we're also required to forsake, not just in this month, but always. But what they do is they say, well, Today I'm going to give up, you know, eating desserts. And tomorrow I'll give, give up uh, drinking coffee. And the next day I give up, you know, eating, uh, you know, lunch or something like that. So they basically sort of pick and choose one meal or some, some favorite food of theirs, and they switch it every single day. So this shows you how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is just one of the many evidences how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent this community of believers astray. And as Allah described in the Quran, they are people who are astray and set others astray. And much less if we discuss their beliefs, how they say, like today when they all wear their best clothes and so forth, and go out to their churches, and then they will say, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is a statement of shirk, and they attribute to Allah, His Son, uh, such an evil statement which, uh, that Allah describes in the Quran that the mountains want to crumble into dust and the sky rip asunder because they say that Ar-Rahman, Allah, has begotten a son. See how the creation, you know, is filled with, you know, terror because this is such an evil statement. And that's why some of the Prophet companions, like Amr al-Khattab, when he used to see a Christian, he would close his eyes, squint his eyes, he says, my eyes cannot bear to see one of these people because of the great evil these people have in their, you know, beliefs and in their morality and so forth. And as another prophet companion said, show no mercy to them, for they have insulted Allah with such an insult that nobody before else besides them, nobody besides them in the creation has insulted him. This and that is because they claim that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a son and, you know, the other types of these beliefs. The point is, is that uh, we, we learn a lesson from this that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set these people astray 
when they began to follow their whims and desires and they left the straight path which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to them uh, to their prophet and then they disbelieved in the coming of the Prophet Muhammad even though they were told and given glad tidings of his coming upon the tongues of their Prophet and such will be in the day, uh, near the day of judgment when they will, when the Messiah returns and they will then see the truth that their uh, beliefs are uh, deluded and this brings me to a point in the we sort of strength from our lecture because of what happened uh, last week in terms of the uh, peace treaty where, uh, you know, this uh, King Hussein of Jordan who is a descendant of the Prophet but yet has forsaken the religion of his grandfather, the Prophet Muhammad by selling Jerusalem to the Jews and the Christians all three of these people the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims await the coming of a Messiah the, they await the coming of return of Isa and Maryam. As far as the Jews, when Isa first came to them, they just believed in him. They just believed in him. And therefore, except a few of them, who followed Isa and Maryam, right? And as far as the Christians, then they also just believed in the Messiah because they then raised him to the position of Allah. But the Muslims, uh, the followers of the Prophet they believe that he is truly the servant of Allah and his messenger and they testify this and they also believe that before the day of judgment he will return uh, back to the earth at Damascus at the right minaret and he will come and he will be a ruler of the Muslims okay and he will judge by the Quran and he will break the cross and he will put an end to Christianity because all Christians alive at that time will realize that he is not the son of Allah but that he is truly just a messenger of Allah and he will exterminate the pig because this is an animal which they have made lawful to themselves to eat and so he will then exterminate the pig as the hadith in the Bukhari mentions so all three uh, nations await his coming all three peoples the Jews await his coming but he really comes the first time they just believed in him and that is why when the Antichrist the Dajjal the false Christ comes they will then believe in him as the Prophet said that the followers of the false Christ, the main uh, people who will follow him will be 70,000 Jews from Isfahan. And Isfahan is a city in Iran. So 70,000 Jews will then follow him. They'll be his main, you know, party of people behind him. And then, of course, the Christians, they will uh, also, they are expecting Asa uh, to come back, but they expect Allah to come back. So when they, when Dajjal comes, they will be deceived by him. And only the Muslims will be able to distinguish between the false Christ, and that is why they will be with the leader of the Muslims at that time, which will be the Mahdi, who's just a regular man, but he will be a righteous person from the Prophet's family, and they will be waiting to face in Jerusalem the, uh, in the battle against the, uh, the Jews, the Jews being led by at Dajjal, and while they are lining up for Fajr prayer, before the day of the battle, Isa will come down and Isa will kill Allah's enemy, Dajjal, and the Muslims will then defeat the Jews and exterminate them. As the Prophet said, the Jews will have to flee and they will try to hide behind rocks and trees. And on that day, rocks and trees will talk and will proclaim, Oh Abdullah, O Muslim, O worshipper of Allah, there will be Jew behind me, come and kill him. 
as far as the Christians, the Muslims in the battle before this have already finished and fought them because the Christians will attack the Muslims also and that occurs before this battle. The point is, is that, you know, that the, what many of you might have heard um, concerning this treaty and so forth, uh, these people have no right to give Jerusalem or any other piece of land to the Jews and the Christians. And even if they are given all of uh, Palestine back and they are to rule it themselves, it still will be incumbent to make jihad against these people because these people do not rule by what Allah has sent down. And rather they, you know, fight Allah's religion. So still jihad would be have to be coming against them because Muslims are apostates anyway from the religion. And that is why you see that they persecute Muslim scholars in their country. Uh, our, our scholars and teachers have been arrested in the last few weeks in Jordan and have been put into jail and they have been forbidden for us to call them and to talk to them and they've been forbidden to take any lectures or anything like this. This is all at the same time he is supposed to be the grandson of the Prophet Sallallahu and supposed to represent the Muslim Ummah and yet this is what he does with the scholars of Islam. And likewise, I was reading yesterday how even uh, Cat Stevens, you might many of you know about him, Muslim Islam, he recently, yesterday arrived, or two days ago arrived there in Jordan and he was immediately arrested in the airport by the authorities and taken to the intelligence agencies and he was given interrogation, him and his wife, because when they saw him in the airport bearded and his wife wearing fully Islamic clothes, they immediately grabbed him, took him to the, uh, not realizing, you know, who he was. And then after they found out, they tried to come out and apologize. The point is, is that to go back to our topic that Allah obligated the facts upon this Ummah like he obligated upon the people behind, before us. And that is one of the principles of Islam, and it is something which should not be uh, neglected, but rather the wisdom behind it is that it's supposed to teach us taqwa, uh, to teach us to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it also has other wisdoms behind it, one of them is it teaches us patience, that in the sense that uh, it is said that fasting is half of patience, in the sense that you learn to give up something which you naturally, your nature inclines toward, and that is food and drink and having sexual relations, and you give it up for the sake of Allah. So it teaches a person fasting. Likewise, it teaches a person mercy. Because in the sense that when we fast and we feel the pains of hunger in our stomach for that afternoon, or that morning and that afternoon, we then sense really what the poor people must feel who do not have any food and drink to eat. Like, uh, like the homeless, for instance, or like those Muslim brothers and sisters we have who live in many parts of the world where they are very poor. So these are just some of the wisdoms behind uh, fasting. And the wisdom is that it teaches us, for instance, that you can always improve to the better. Because usually people, when they come in the month of the fast, they are encouraged to do good deeds, and they sense that, um, you know, that they are, have a chance to, you know, uh, do acts of piety and to get closer to Allah. So it always shows us that even though sometimes our faith might drop, and there is still a chance that we can revive ourselves because once a year at least we go through this process so we are always pushing ourselves, we can always push ourselves to, to uh, become closer to Allah and likewise it teaches us to have control of our lives and to have precision in our lives because when you know that you have to get up at a certain time to eat your meal just before the break of the start of the fast and likewise you break your fast during a certain time and uh, usually people during the month of fast are more precise with doing their prayers on time and so forth it teaches us to make our lives, uh, you know, intact and not to waste our time and our efforts, which is something which we are 
required as Muslims to be like, and we are in great need of, especially during these times of tribulation that the Muslims face. Anyway, uh, that's just some of the reasons behind fasting. And I guess there's another case that I, I speak about the fast in some of the other lessons. You can refer to that. The, um, the, as far as the fast, it's required upon every Muslim who has reached the age of uh, maturity in the sense that he's an adult by the rules of Sharia and that he's also sane and he is able to fast and he is not traveling. So therefore this shows us that the kafir is not required to fast. And if the kafir fasts, this fast will be of no uh, reward to him unless he becomes a Muslim. Um, and likewise, uh, the person who has is insane, he has lost his mental uh, faculties, whether he's lost that due to uh, an illness that he has, like he's insane, or whether due to uh, old age, he no longer uh, is able to, you know, uh, discern uh, between matters. These people are not required for them to fast. And even if he's a Muslim, so therefore there is no reason to pay food in his debt because it's not obligatory upon him. And likewise, uh, the person who is uh, ill, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it permissible for the person who is ill not to fast and we'll discuss these regulations in a moment with the ill person because it's somewhat detailed. And likewise, the person who is traveling, Allah has given a, a, a license for the person who is traveling that he does not have to fast and we'll talk about the rules for the person traveling in a moment. But the month of Ramadan is determined by two things. Either the moon is cited, as the Prophet says, fast when you see it's the, the new crescent, and break your fast when you see the new crescent. And likewise, or if the month of Sha'dan, which is the month that precedes Ramadan, 30 days are completed, because the lunar month can only be 29 or 30 days. So if we find that the month precedes a previous Ramadan, we spend 30 days, even though we have not seen the crescent, and therefore the next day will be Ramadan. So these are the two ways that Ramadan is uh, determined. And it can be determined by only by the, uh, the witness of any trustworthy Muslim who witnesses that he saw the new uh, moon, the crescent. Uh, it has been therefore, uh, the fact begins upon, his, upon this uh, one person. And the proof is, is that um, a person, um, a Bedouin one time saw the, the new moon, and he knew in Medina, and then he came to Medina the next day. Because by the time it took him to travel overnight, it was already daytime when he came to the Prophet And he said, I saw the moon last night. So the Prophet said, do you bear witness that there is no lady of worship except for Allah? And then Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And the Prophet was determining if he was a Muslim or not. He said, yes, I bear witness. So then the Prophet commanded the people to begin the fast. And that we should remain that day, uh, for the rest of the day, not to eat or drink because Ramadan had entered. Even when they had woke up uh, and they had begun eating and drinking. Now, uh, as far as those people who are not, we said, uh, required to fast, the first group is, of course, those women who are menstruating or who are uh, bleeding after childbirth, post-childbirth uh, blood is coming from them. Uh, they do not have to fast. However, they have to make up the day which they did not fast. 
So therefore, every sister should be certain that when her monthly uh, period comes, or if she was pregnant and she had some sort of uh, bleeding after the uh, birth of the child, and it's in the month of Ramadan, then therefore she must uh, count those days, and she must then therefore make those days up before the next Ramadan comes. And likewise, the uh, person who is uh, ill. Now, the person who is ill is three cases. There's a person who has an illness in which his illness does not harm him. By his fasting will not harm him and make his illness worse. Let's say somebody has a headache, or he's cut his hand or something, or he has maybe twisted his foot. In other words, by fasting, it will not make the illness increase. And therefore, nor it would be overbearing upon him that he says that he cannot keep the fast, this type of illness. Uh, it's required for this person to fast. Now, there's another person in which he, um, it would be difficult for him to fast when he's ill. However, though, it wouldn't be to the degree that it's going to actually cause physical harm to him. In other words, his illness is not such that it's going to actually cause him to get more ill by fasting. This person, it is dislike for him to fast. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him a leeway that he doesn't have to fast. So therefore, some of the scholars have said that therefore, since Allah has given you this leeway, you should take it. It shows you a thankfulness to Allah. Although the Prophet's companions, some of them were fast and some of them were not fast, so even if he wants to fast, that's fine. Now the third group of person is the person who is, by fasting, it will actually cause physical harm to him, since his, his illness will get worse. Or he has a type of illness, uh, yeah, so his illness will get worse. So this person is forbidden from to fast. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want us to punish ourselves and to destroy ourselves, you know, through uh, doing an act of worship. Allah has decreed that people should fast during this month, and likewise he's decreed that this individual, he or she, has this illness that if he was to fast, it would cause his illness to get worse. So in this case, uh, he can um, not, he doesn't have to fast. It's not required upon him. Um, however, though, uh, he must um, give every single day, uh, he must feed a poor person uh, for every single day of that month. Now, how do you determine what type of illness you have? I mean, somebody might say, well, I feel that my illness is such, and then somebody might argue and say, well, no, your illness is not really that bad. The, the determining factor, this would be the testimony of a Muslim doctor. Okay, and this Muslim doctor has to be trustworthy. In his medical judgment, also trustworthy in his religion. Because obviously this doctor himself doesn't pray or fast or, you know, saying, doesn't care about the religion of Islam, then his testimony for you that your illness is uh, such is, is questionable. So therefore, for that Muslim doctor who is trustworthy in his religion and trustworthy in his medical judgment, it means to say that, uh, you know, by you fasting, brother or sister, is actually going to cause greater harm to your body, and therefore you, you should not fast. Uh, then therefore a person can give the fast in that case. And the truth is worry, you know, and you can feed a poor person every single day uh, for that. Uh, now, this is in the case you should feed a poor person, I, I, I made for last mention the point, only if it's illness is such that it's continuous, and the sense that he never expects that he will 
uh, gets better. Like a person who is terminally ill with cancer, for instance, okay? And the doctors have, you know, the cancer has reached such a stage where they say that, you know, that it's going to cause him more harm. And therefore, or he has some sort of kidney illness, and you know, it's not fast whatsoever uh, at all, then he must not, uh, he can see a poor person. However, though, that illness is temporary in the sense that, for instance, a person is going to go have surgery in the month of Ramadan, and therefore he just come out of surgery or come out of some sort of illness. And the doctor says, look, you can't fast because by your fasting you won't cure, be cured from this illness. You'll get worse, you know. Or you need to build up your strength for this surgery, you know. There are benefits from that. But in this case, he needs to make up those days. You know, because the illness is only temporary. Only the illness is continuous and he can see a poor person in um, stead. The, uh, so he mentions the woman uh, who's bleeding, uh, whether from her monthly period or from uh, had given birth. And likewise, we mentioned the ill person. The third uh, group is uh, those women who are pregnant or who are breastfeeding. Uh, likewise, they um, can embrace their fast if they are concerned that their fasting is going to harm the child which they bear in their wounds or uh, the child which they're breastfeeding. In other words, that they can't, I, or it's going to harm them, that they can't keep the fast. Then in this case, uh, it is permissible for them to break their fast. Now, some scholars have said that if the woman is afraid for her child, uh, whether in her room or when she's breastfeeding, then she needs to, besides making up the day, she also needs to feed a poor person. Well, other scholars said no, that in either case, whether she fears for herself or fears for the child, she just needs to make up that day. And the second opinion seems to be the closest uh, to the truth, and the other opinion really didn't have very strong evidence, even though it's an opinion of some scholars. Now, the uh, fourth category is the person who has become, uh, uh, who is uh, traveling, and um, this person uh, is also two types of people who are traveling. There's that person who's traveling because he's trying to run away from fasting. Okay, so on purpose he gets out of that. And there's the other person who's traveling because he's doing it for some sort of uh, permissive needs, whether it's his job or he's going on hajj or going on umrah. Not hajj, of course, going on umrah. And, uh, or going down from jihad to the path of the law or going to seek knowledge or going to gain any sort of worldly means. It's permitted for him to break his fast. And some of the Prophet's companions would fast while traveling, and others would not. And so therefore, it is a matter in which um, it is up to the person. Except, of course, if the traveling is going to be such where that it's going to harm the person by fasting, then he's required to break his fast. And likewise, for the people who are in jihad, uh, those people who are actually on the battlefield and so forth, they can be commanded to break their fast in order to preserve their strength to face the enemy. Because if they were fasting, they might not have enough strength to actually engage in the uh, rigors of, of battle, and so therefore they can be commanded, and they have to break their fast. So these are some of the categories of those who have to fast and those who have an excuse not for fasting. We now come to matters which breaks one's fast. And when does a person, just like we mentioned, the matters which break the person's wudu, when if he, for instance, passes wind or defecates or urinates or sleeps, his wudu is broken, and he has to then remove his wudu. Now I'm going to mention matters that will lead the person's fast to be broken. The first uh, case is a person who has sex uh, during 
the day of Ramadan, during the daytime while he was fasting. And this person besides having to make up that day, he has to do an expiation for that sin. And that expiation is, is a very severe one. The first thing he has to do is uh, he must free a slave. That's the first category. In other words, if he has the money, he would have to go buy a slave and then free him. Or if he had a slave, he would have to set that slave free. This is the first uh, category. The second category is that if he cannot do that, like now since there are no really slaves anymore, uh, a person would have to fast two months in a row. He would have to fast the 60 days consecutively. After you know Ramadan is over, he would have to fast 60 consecutive days. And if he cannot, because his, um, he has some sort of illness or his, you know, his body is not strong enough to take care of that type of uh, 60 days, continuous days, uh, then therefore he has to feed uh, 60 people, okay, one for each day of the 60 days which he was to fast. And you can do this in, in a number of ways. You can either you know, bring 60 people and feed them a meal, or feed one person for 60 days, or you know, feed 20 people for three meals a day. The point is just to feed them uh, 60, uh, 60 uh, people. Uh, the next thing is that <coughs> a person, even though he doesn't have the, doesn't do the act of uh, sexual intercourse, however though he releases um, or she uh, the fluids, and that occurs due to uh, kissing or touching or hugging or some act like that. Um, so this also breaks one's fast. But since he was in the intent behind it was not to have sex, you know what I'm saying? He just it happened, then therefore uh, this person doesn't have to have the, he needs to make it that day. He does not have to do the expiation of feeding a slave or fasting 60 days or feeding 60 poor people. But he has to make up that day. And of course, this is a person while he's awake. Obviously, if something occurs to a person while he's asleep, then that is not upon um, him anything. The next uh, category is eating or drinking. Anybody who eats or drinks during the daytime, his fast is broken, and therefore he has to make up that day. Unless he forgets, because the Prophet said that if you forget, you accidentally eat or drink. Like it might be a hot day during Ramadan and you walk by a water fountain and you accidentally bend over and drink some water and you're like, oh, this is as the Prophet said, that this is food or drink which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving you. So it doesn't harm one's fast and you should not worry about it. Allah wanted to be merciful with you and give you something to eat or drink during the day. This is what goes into not remembering that it's the fast of Ramadan. Forget it. The person who willfully does it, he's committed a sin and he has to make up that day. Likewise, the person who is, uh, who takes some sort of IV, you know, uh, some sort of fluid uh, injection, which sort of is like, um, you know, eating and drinking in the sense that it gives him strength and so forth. And this also is considered like um, eating and drinking and therefore it breaks one's fat. However, for instance, if a person does, um, takes a shock, for instance, okay, uh, uh, a shock against some sort of disease or something like that, that doesn't necessarily break one's fast. Okay? But what breaks one's fast is he takes an IV, for instance, okay? which uh, replaces you know, eating and drinking so that it provides that person with the, needs, uh, the sustenance you know, through that fluid, which is like eating and drinking. Now, um, 
also smoking. Smoking, of course, is a sin. It's one of the major sins, and it is forbidden in the Sharia. But the scholars have also said that smoking is equal to eating and drinking, and therefore the person who smokes is uh, uh, his fast is broken, and he has to make up that day. Uh, now, the next uh, category is to take out one's blood, like bloodletting, cupping. One of the rules of medicine, which was practiced in the time of the Prophet, and he would encourage Muslims to practice it as a means of protecting oneself from illnesses, is to have what is called bloodletting or cupping. And they make a small incision in the body and they remove some blood from it. So whoever does that, his fast is broken. Uh, likewise, if somebody um, does something like a blood transfusion or anything in the same uh, meaning of that, it is also considered uh, a break of his fast. However, though, if one loses some blood, for instance, like just for a test, they take some blood from him, you know, it's like one test tube, or for instance, um, he is doing some sort of dental work and he starts to believe, you know, or he has a cut and so forth, and this isn't um, going to break one's fast. So someone does cupping or does a lot of blood is removed from him for some medical reason. The next category, the sixth category, is to vomit. Whoever willfully vomits, in, in, in other words, he induces vomiting to himself, uh, he uh, has broken his fast. And the seventh category is that the woman, if she's fasting, and then all of a sudden during the day, her period starts, you know, or if she was uh, pregnant and um, she gave birth and the bleeding occurred and then while she was fasting, then in that case, the fast is broken and that day has to be made up. Now, however, the, these things are broken when three conditions are met. The first condition is that you have to be known, that you have to know that this is one of the things that breaks one's fast. Let's say a person does not know that by taking an IV or having a lot of blood removed, you know, uh, breaks one's fast. So therefore, he does it and then he finds out later on. So it does not break one's fast by doing that, okay? Let's say a doesn't know that smoking is a sin, and doesn't know that also smoking breaks one's fast. So in this case, his fast is not broken, uh, because he does not, he's not aware of that. And likewise, what has to be knowing that, it's, that you're in the time of the fast? For instance, if one starts to eat and drink, and he doesn't realize that Fajr, the dawn has come in, that he's supposed to stop eating or drinking, okay? Or, let's say it's very dark outside, uh, very cloudy and so forth, and he thinks it's sunset, and he starts eating and drinking, and then realizes that he's eaten or drunk, uh, such a drink before uh, the time of uh, Maghrib, uh, then the fast is not broken, and there's no con- worry for that. Uh, the second um, uh, condition is that he remembers, in the sense that he does any of these acts, even if he has sex, you know what I'm saying, with his wife, and he forgets that it's Ramadan. Okay, and also his wife is a non-Muslim, you know, and so she wasn't fasting also. So, and so then there's no uh, uh, sin upon him and his fast is still, you know. And the third thing is that uh, he does this willfully, in the sense that if, if he uh, does not do this willfully, like he vomits not by his choice, but it comes upon him, or um, he goes to sleep and, you know, um, he has a, some sort of emission and therefore he didn't want this to happen. He could not break one's fast or he forgets that he, he, he's not supposed to eat and drink and he accidentally eats and drinks and does not uh, break one's fast. And here's also a matter which they mention usually during the fast 
uh, is that is the use of the siwak or the uh, the brush, toothbrush. There is no harm to use this, whether you do it in the morning or in the afternoon. Some scholars have tried to say that after the sun starts to decline, I mean, after midday, one should not brush his teeth, but there's no harm in that whatsoever. And they base this upon the argument that uh, that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in a Qudsi hadith that the most descent which is beloved by him and that is with him as the scent of musk is the scent which comes from the mouth of a person who is fasting. Even though this is something that's a bad smell uh, that, that is still beloved by Allah and it's with him like the scent of musk. So some of the scholars in there before said we shouldn't brush our teeth in order to preserve this smell uh, in us. There is no evidence to this. Indeed, the Prophet would brush his teeth after the decline of the sun. And likewise, it's known that this scent comes from the uh, inside of a person, from his intestines or his, uh, his stomach, his, you know, and not necessarily from his mouth itself. So uh, by brushing one's teeth, it doesn't really remove uh, that scent. Now, there's uh, something else on Likewise, one can uh, wash his mouth or he can uh, blow his nose uh, during his, while he's fasting. He can pour water over himself while he's fasting. Uh, there's no harm in that whatsoever. However, the Prophet said when one is fasting, he should not uh, blow too much, too strong the water up his nose uh, because it might go down and he might then ingest it. So therefore, one should not avoid that when he's uh, fasting. Um, and likewise, for those people who have respiratory uh, difficulties and they want to use inhalers and so forth, the majority of the scholars have said this inhaler does not break one's fast, and therefore there is no harm in that. And likewise, um, use of perfume or eye drops or ear drops or nose drops, there's no, nothing wrong with that whatsoever, or suppositories or anything like that doesn't break one's fast. The next uh, section we come to in the fast is the... Um, the recommended fast, and the best fast is the fast of the Prophet Dawood, alayhi salam, the Prophet said, who used to fast uh, one day and would break his fast another day. As far as fasting 365 days a year, uh, this is something which is forbidden. The Prophet forbade us to fast this day, and he said the best fast, if you are want to do this fast, is to fast a day and break a day, and fast a day and break a day. And there's nothing better than that. The other um, the fast is uh, recommended is the fasting of the first day, ten days of the, uh, uh, well, before I get to that, the other good fast is the fast six days in the month of Shawan, which comes after Ramadan. Here's the Prophet said, whoever fasts the month of Ramadan and follows it with six days of Shawan, it is as if he fasted the whole year. The reason why is that good deeds are multiplied by ten, up to seven hundred, and sometimes even more. So, for instance, if you fast the month of Ramadan, how many, by 10, which is the minimum amount of reward, means how many months is equal to? 10 months, right? And if you fast 6 days, and it's multiplied by 10, it means 60 days, which is 2 months. So 10 and 2 is 12 months, which means as if you fasted the whole year. Because good deeds are multiplied tenfold, up to 700-fold, and sometimes even along gives even more than that. So therefore, when a person fasts in the Ramadan, he's as if he's fasting 10 days, months, if Allah accepts his fast, and then therefore he follows with the 6 days of Shawwal, he then therefore is times 6 times 10 is 60 days, if Allah accepts that fast, which is 2 months, and that's 10 and 2 is 12 months, which means as if he follows the whole 
uh, since he fasted the whole year. The next uh, fast is the fast of Ashura, which is the 10th of uh, Muharram. And this is a day in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rescued the Prophet Moses alayhi salam from his enemy, uh, Pharaoh. And the Prophet said, we are, the Jews used to fast this day during the time of the Prophet As uh, so the Prophet said, we deserve, uh, we are more uh, deserving of Moses than they are because we truly follow his message, unlike the Jews who have twisted his message. And so therefore he commanded us to fast this day. At first it was obligatory and became a recommended practice. And he then said to be, before to be different than the Jews, we should fast a day uh, before that or a day after that. And this tenth of Muharram removes the sins of a year. So to fast that day removes the sins of a, a year. As far as uh, of the previous year, as far as the fast of the day of Arafah, which is the day when the pilgrims in Mecca congregate, the day before the Eid uh, of the last month of the year, the Prophet said that to fast this day removes the sins of two years, the past year and the coming year. So this is also another day which one should fast. Uh, now this is for those people who are not during Hajj, but who are um, outside, not participating in Hajj, they can, should fast this day to get this. As far as those people who are doing Hajj, they should not fast so they can keep all their strength so they can pray and invoke Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and remember Allah while they are on the plains of Arafah. And likewise, it is a good practice to fast the white days, which is called, which means the days in which the moon is full the, of the month. And those are three days during the year. Uh, of the Islamic uh, month, you can, you can also tell through the, uh, that's the 13th, 14th, and 15th. The Prophet used to encourage us to fast those three days. And likewise, he encouraged us to fast Mondays and Thursdays. And that is because uh, on Monday and Thursday, the deeds of mankind are taken directly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Usually, as we know, that the angels will take our deeds up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and of course, Allah knows what we're doing, but he, they take them up. Except for Mondays and Thursdays, the gates of heaven are open and the deeds rise to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. So therefore, the Prophet would want that when his deeds write to Allah on a Monday or a Thursday, that he would be fasting, because it leaves more chance for one's deeds to be accepted, because fasting of all the acts of worship is the one which Allah loves the most, and that is because uh, nobody can tell that you're fasting. It's something between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not one of those actions in which you do openly, and therefore it might enter some sort of, um, you know, uh, intention, might not be pure, but might want to praise of the creation. So therefore, since it's something nobody knows whether you're fasting or not, uh, Allah loves this deed, and therefore the Prophet would want his, this deed to rise up with his other deeds whether on Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, now, the Prophet forbade us to fast certain days. Among that is the two Eids, the Eid of Fitr and the Eid of Al-Adha. The Prophet forbade us to fast those days. And likewise, the three days after Eid Al-Adha, which is called Ayyam al-Tashriq, in which uh, a person in Sasha and so forth, the Prophet said these days are days of eating and drinking. So therefore, uh, one and remembering of Allah, eating and drinking, remembering of Allah, that's the tekbirs that we make. Uh, therefore, one should not fast on these days. Except for the person who's making a time of hajj, which is known as hajj's metric, in where a person, he makes umrah first, and then he breaks his ihram, and then he dons the ihram again for the hajj, uh, if this person doesn't have 
with him a sacrifice to slaughter, he has to make up fast ten days. So he can fast in those days to make up those ten days, um, as in Bukhari's hadith show. So those are some of the days in which we're not permitted to fast. Among the actions which the scholars usually mention uh, that's come with the fast is al-i'tikaf. And the i'tikaf means to seclude oneself in the masjid for the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it can be done in any masjid in which the jama'ah and the jama'ah prayers are held. In other words, any masjid which has the five regular prayers and the jama'ah prayer, then therefore you can make an i'tikaf during this uh, masjid. And uh, some scholars have said that you can only make i'tikaf in the three masjid, meaning the mosque of uh, Mecca, Masjid al-Haram, the Prophet's mosque, and the mosque of Jerusalem, Beit al-Maqdas, may Allah, uh, free from the hands of uh, Allah's enemies, the Jews. Now, one can uh, make i'tikaf uh, in any masjid, some said only in those three masjids, and therefore, i'tikaf, uh, when is i'tikaf, the idea behind it is that one secludes himself just for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he does not engage in any sort of worldly pursuits, and therefore he should stay in the masjid and he should not leave the masjid except for some sort of uh, bodily needs. Like he can step out to eat and drink to, if he needs to break his fast after, or to take a pre-dawn meal, and likewise if he has to go to the bathroom or he needs to change his clothes or he needs to take a shower, any of these sort of things he can do. However, though, he should only do that matter and then come right back to the masjid. I mean, he shouldn't use that as an excuse and leave the masjid and sort of hang outside for a while. And while he's in etikaf, he should spend his time reading the Qur'an and praying and remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet did this and also he permitted his wife to do such. So this is a good action to do. And likewise, one should not... What makes the etikaf is uh, having uh, sex with one's wife for instance, this will break the etikaf, even if it's done in the nighttime, because the etikaf, the seclusion message is for both the day hours while one's fasting, and likewise for the night and throughout the whole day. It is the one that practices the Prophet, uh, which he used to do. So that is in brief the rules of fasting and the rules of etikaf. Uh, and I refer the brothers, of course, to a book which has been published in England. Inshallah, the brothers will have some copies of that before the next month Ramadan in five months, six months from now. And that is uh, the fast of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This book is like that book, the prayer of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's written by Shem of Sheikh Al-Albani students and it was been translated in England. And it shows us how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to fast. Likewise, uh, that other little booklet, the wudu of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used to make wudu and so forth. These are three books. Uh, these are three uh, acts of worship which we always do. Wudu and prayer and uh, fasting. So it's good for every Muslim should have in his library these three books. And he should spend some time reading them and studying them so that his prayer and his purity, his wudu, and also his fast will be like that of his prophet, who Allah has commanded us to obey. And with this, I uh, will conclude this lecture, but before I, I close today, uh, there is one point to bring forth, and that is, of course, we know that acts of worship are only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and therefore whoever does any act of worship to other than Allah has committed shirk and if one does any act of worship for praise of the people he will not be rewarded but will be severely punished for this and in my opinion outside of the fold of Islam 
and also that worship is to be done to Allah out of three pillars. Worship is based, and that is that of love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his blessings, the greatest of which is the blessing of Islam, and the sunnah being Allah has guided us to the sunnah within Islam, and likewise uh, out of hope of Allah's mercy and fear of his wrath and punishment. And likewise, that acts of worship are accepted by Allah when two conditions are fulfilled. They are done solely for Allah's sake, no other motivation, and they are done in accordance with the way of the Prophet Muhammad So with this, we conclude these acts of lectures, uh, this series of lectures. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless us and to accept this deed from us, and that He makes this useful knowledge and He forgives us for any faults uh, or slips uh, that occurred in these lectures. Maybe some questions, I guess we have a few moments for some questions. Um, when, 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 the men, you know, if the mosque, the message is very small, you see what I'm saying, in the sense that it does not become possible, you know, that men and women both share the message, then, you know, maybe women might be discouraged from making etikah. But in the time of the Prophet, the Prophet's wives would set up a little tent for themselves, even the Prophet would set up a little tent for himself, in the message where he would sit in, so it nobody would bother him. You see what I'm saying? So if you had, you know, a little small one-person tent that you could set up in the masjid, you know, a sister could do that. Or if the masjid is very big, like the masjid al-haram in Mecca, where sisters have their own section where they make a kafin. And, you know, I mean, they're so far from the men, and the masjid is so spacious that, I mean, you know, brothers will not see them unless they want to go there, you know what I'm saying? Then that's, that's okay, you know. I don't want to stress. Here are the questions from the sister. Uh, can it only be a Muslim doctor that recommends you not to fast? Uh, is there any authentic hadith that states a woman should not breastfeed if she's pregnant? These are two good questions from the sister. Uh, only a Muslim doctor? It should be a Muslim doctor. However, though, if we're in a situation like we are living amongst the non-Muslims and we find no Muslim doctor who's available to us and we only have non-Muslim doctor, if we feel that this non-Muslim doctor has no reason to cheat us, in other words, many of these doctors, you know what I'm saying, even though they're Jews and Christians, they really are not necessarily fanatical to their religion. So therefore, if he advises you, so therefore, if he advises you that it is, um, you know, in your best interest not to fast and that it will cause harm to you, so therefore, you can take his judgment. Is a no Muslim doctor in that case? You know, and you can even seek another medical opinion, for instance, just to confirm that. However, it seems that the doctor is fanatical, and the doctor is of such an attitude that he has, you know, ill will towards the Muslim, you know, and that he's just saying this out of, you know, spite. Then obviously, in this case, one would not take his opinion. So one would have to make a judgment in that case. Uh, in that case, now. Also, it's important when one goes to a doctor, especially if he's not a Muslim doctor who's knowledgeable about his religion, that he has to explain to the doctor, I mean, what is the Islamic ruling here? So that an illness, will fasting cause my illness to become worse? 
and will cause undue stress upon my body. You know, then the doctor, you know, might give you things. If you, if, otherwise, the doctor might think that the, the fasting will just cause you some sort of discomfort and not necessarily cause harm to your body. So in this case, it just causes you some discomfort, as I mentioned. If, uh, if the discomfort is severe, then it becomes dislike to fast, but you can still fast. There's no harm in that. However, that's actually going to cause harm to your body. And since your illness is going to get worse, then it becomes forbidden to fast. So it's important that also with these non-Muslim doctors that one explains to them clearly what, what you're looking for. I mean, in other words, I'm ill. Will my fast cause me discomfort, or would my fast cause my illness to be more severe? Is there any authentic hadith that says a woman should not breastfeed if she's pregnant? No. This matter, again, uh, goes back to the woman. There's no authentic hadith which, that I'm aware of, and Allah knows best, that says such. So, therefore, uh, in this case, uh, one should, uh, can breastfeed the child, and if she feels that it's going to be harmful for her, or harmful for the child, and she wants to break her fast, She's permitted and she just needs to make up a day for every day she breaks her fast. This is up to her decision, you know what I'm saying? Or a doctor, if a doctor advises her such. Have another question. Is there any way that American Muslims can adopt orphan Bosnian refugees? Um, there are a way which is um, fulfilling the Islamic Sharia. And that is there are certain um, Muslim, trustworthy Muslim organizations overseas who have the, the Muslim children and you can send money, uh, a monthly, you know, amount, uh, for an orphan, okay? And the orphans are not just from Bosnia, they're all from all over the Islamic world, uh, from Afghanistan, for those people who, where their fathers were, mothers were served maybe by the communists or their fathers were making religion jihad and died. Also in Africa, a lot of Muslims, like in Somalia and so forth, after the fitna that occurred there and the killing. I'm sure in Rwanda there will be Muslim uh, orphans and so forth. So, uh, therefore, there are more than these. And inshallah ta'ala, uh, I will give the address of one of these organizations or two uh, to Brother Abdul Qadir, and you can check with him, and uh, then you can write them. And you can send them amounts of money for uh, that. And this is a great and worthy. Uh, may Allah reward the sister for bringing this issue. Uh, it's a very worthy thing. He, the Prophet said, I and the person who takes care of an orphan will be like this on the day of judgment. Meaning that, and he pointed with his two fingers, meaning we will be together. So it's a great reward to take care of an orphan. And if the brother finds that taking care of an orphan is too difficult for him himself, then he might, with some of his other brothers, all put in a month, some monthly amount to take care of an orphan, you know, so that three or four brothers can share in that reward, and hopefully Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept it from them all. And usually the amount of money is not much really to take care of an orphan, uh, because people overseas, they have very limited amounts to take care of them. So inshallah, I'll leave the address uh, next, uh, uh, this week with Brother Abdul Qadr, and you can call the office or uh, ask him next week uh, during the class uh, for that. Uh, for those brothers or sisters who would like to sponsor some orphans. I respect question, 
And also, uh, the second question is, if the person is asked and he wants to uh, feed the quarterback, when is the time in which we should begin These are two good questions that uh, I'm going to mention that I neglected to talk about in the lecture. The first question is concerning the intention. When does one have to intend to fast? Uh, if it's the fast of the month of Ramadan, every evening he needs to make that intention. And the intention, all it is, is just that he's just desire that he's going to fast the next day. It's not a certain formula saying that one has to say, as you see it's sometimes printed in these Ramadan calendars and so forth, that one should say, in the late to and the soul that I, I intend to fast this day. No. The intention in all acts of worship, uh, with the exception of the Hajj and the Umrah, uh, is just what one feels in his heart. So, if you, that evening, after you've broken your fast, you know, that, that thought passes in your mind, that you know, that you, Allah willing, you fast the next day, you've made your intention. That's it. Now, as far as the recommended fast, not one of the uh, obligatory fasts, like the fast of Ramadan, then it is sufficient that one makes that intention before the Zuhr prayer. In other words, if somebody has not eaten or drunk uh, anything, or had sex uh, before, or that any of these things takes place when fast, like intentionally vomiting or so forth, before Zuhr prayer, he can fast that day. It is the same in the practice, I mean, he used to wake up in the morning, he would ask his wife, uh, whatever wife he was with that evening, uh, that day, uh, do you have any food in the house? If she said there was food, he would take a meal. If she said there was no food, he would then say, I'm fasting. And therefore he would gain that day. Even though he didn't make his intention to fast that evening. So that shows us how our prophet, lives, that he was in such, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, poor, space, that they would not even have food on many days, and he would just, you know, they would get up in the morning, they would just see if there was any food to have to eat, otherwise they would, uh, you know, fast that day. So I said, that. Here's another two. Is there another question? No. Uh, question the other question is, what is question is that, you know, some of the sunnah of fasting, some of the, uh, the uh, recommended practices, that one takes a meal before the Starts. And the Prophet said, this Ummah will remain in a good state so long as it delays its pre-dawn meal and, and it speeds up its breaking its fast. In other words, one of the ways of, that shows that the, the Ummah had gone astray is when they will take the pre-dawn meal early. Okay, and likewise they'll delay the breaking of the fast until the stars appear, until nightfall has occurred. And this is the practice of some of the uh, astray sects, like the, the Shia and others. And it is uh, a sign of being extreme in one's religion. You see, the Prophet Sunnah was that they would eat until the Adhan would appear. And even if the Adhan was said, and they had in their hands food or drink, they would finish it. This is the Prophet practice. So for instance, if you're in a Muslim country, or you live next to the masjid, or you have your alarm clock set, and you're eating or drinking something, and you haven't finished it, and the event comes in, continue with your food. This is the Prophet from Sunnah. There is no harm in that. And likewise, the Prophet from Sunnah was that as soon as the sun would set, it would immediately break their fast. And he said the Ummah would remain good, in good, 
so long as it does that. And likewise, he says that in, he said that the pre-dawn meal, that there is uh, blessings in it. And that one should take a pre-dawn meal, even if it's just a, uh, a gulp of water, because there's blessings in it. And it's the practice, indeed, is the sunnah, as another hadith says, of all the prophets. This is the practice of all the prophets. Of Allah, not just only our prophets. So what you see in these calendars, they have something called insak, where they tell you to stop eating, sometimes 15 or 20, sometimes 30 minutes before the Asajjah. This is a bidah. And this is some of the extremism that people have added to the religion of Allah, and there's no need for. You can eat until the, um, uh, the dawn comes. And also sometimes if you notice the calendars, they change you in the Fajr time and sort of move it up a bit. Uh, because they want to make sure that people don't eat, and this is also extremism. And likewise, the delay is another time. You'll notice that the day, the calendar printed the day before Ramadan was, you know, Maghrib was 10 minutes earlier than the day after, the first day of Ramadan, it moves 10 minutes. It's, you know, impossible that in one day they change 10 minutes because they want to make sure that, you know, the, month, the, the sun gets in. So, I mean, if you're certain that uh, its sun has set, you should break your fast immediately. And likewise, uh, once you know that dawn has occurred, you should stop eating unless there's something in your hand, and you can continue finishing that. Right? And there's no harm in that, and I want this rest. Um, people around, people around to question about marriage. Uh, is it haram to get married in a courthouse and so forth? We should know that uh, marriage, of course, is when the contract of marriage is established. And for that, some conditions must be met. That there must be a person, you know, offering and accepting. This is the wedding, for instance. The wedding says, I offer you my charge, my daughter, or my sister, or my aunt or my mother, whoever he's in charge of, okay, and the other person says, I accept. Or, the other way around, the person says, I'd like to marry, you know, your daughter, and the wali, the guardian says, she's yours. That's it, okay. The other condition is that there needs to be a dowry, this is her right, okay, and this matters whatever the, uh, the dowry uh, that she feels it's her money, it's not for the parents' money or not to be used for a party or something like that. And the Prophet said, the marriage has most blessing and the dowry is the least. And the dowry of the Prophet's daughters would be what uh, I calculated one time, be close to something like $25. That's how little the dowry of the Prophet's daughters were. Not because his daughters were cheap or something like that and therefore no, they are the daughters of the messenger of Allah, they are the prophet's companions, you know. And amongst them was Fatima, who is among the you know, best women of mankind. But because the Prophet said that there is much blessing in the marriage, more blessing in marriage when the dowry is little. And this is, you know, one of the problems that you have in the uh, Islamic world is that families, and also those Muslim families, uh, you know, who are Muslims who now live in the West, for instance, they charge ridiculous amounts for dowry. They charge uh, $10,000, $25,000, uh, $40,000, you know. And which youth 
young man is going to have that type of money in his pocket. They do this for a couple of reasons. First of all, they do this because it's a debt. So they'll say, okay, you don't have to give the $10,000 now. You need to just give, you know, $200, but you owe her $9,800 to guarantee that you're not divorce her. Because if you divorce her, you have to pay all the money up. Or if you haven't had sex with her, then at least half the money you have to give according to the Quran. So this is one thing to prevent divorce. So this is resembling the Christians who do not divorce, even though Allah has allowed divorce in this community, because sometimes the husband and the wife cannot, you know, I mean, reconcile their differences, and it's, you know, their best interest to divorce, to divorce themselves. This is something which Allah has made lawful for us. The only reason why they do this is because they want to have extravagant parties. You know, and in some of these poor countries, they actually sell their daughters because they are poor and they need money to, you know, buy a house or a television or a plot of land or whatever. So this is all practices of ignorance of jahiliya and entails certain types of sinfulness. Now, the other condition for the marriage is there need to be two witnesses. Two witnesses who see the, uh, the, the, the uh, giving of the bride and the acceptance, you know what I'm saying, by both parties, and also bear witness that they agreed upon a certain amount for dowry. And likewise, both parties have to be in agreement that they want one another. In the sense that a woman cannot be forced into marriage, nor can the man be forced into the marriage that says that he doesn't want to marry that, you know, lady or something like that. So if these conditions are fulfilled, the marriage occurs. And as I said, all it is is a word. I offer you and I accept. Or I'd like to marry and you say, fine. Yeah, that's it. It can be in any language. It can be in any setting. Even now, if they say brother to brothers, so forth, right in front of us, that would be the, the marriage right then and there. It's just something very easy, you know. However, though, the question about the courts comes into play when we consider uh, that we're not in a Muslim country. The practice of the Muslims are these to register their marriages, sometimes with the Qadr, with the Muslim judge. Not because it's a religious practice requirement, but this is a way to preserve the rights of the both parties, in the sense that they cannot then claim against the, 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 you know, the young man, well, you agreed, you know I'm saying, to give her $10,000 salary. What's this you're saying? It was only $25 according to the Sunnah. So it's something which is registered with the Qadi, you know, and so forth. And likewise, um, you know, if he agreed a certain amount and then he tries to renege on it, or what, I mean, whatever the reason, to protect their rights. Now, in this country, uh, obviously the, the, the statement of the disbeliever is, is not of any value, and likewise, their court system is Pahut, which we've been asked to disbelieve in, because it doesn't judge by what Allah has sent down. However, though, as Muslims, since we do live in a non-Muslim society, sometimes it's important to preserve the rights and protect the rights of both parties by registering it in, uh, in the court. And likewise, many misogynists sometimes will not uh, do the marriage uh, unless they you register in court in order to protect themselves from any uh, harm. So in this case, if a brother you know, and sister register their marriage in the sense to protect both parties from any harm, or you know, or they're compelled to do this because the mosque in their community will not marry the mosque unless they first register in court, they can go ahead and do it. But they should understand that by them registering it in court, this is not the Islamic marriage. This is just a formality they're doing because they're not in a Muslim country. And also, if they consider that this is a marriage, for instance, they are ignorant of the Islamic Sharia in the sense that many Muslims think by registering it in court, 
and they do what we call sunnah marriage, that this is sufficient, and they don't have to do the Islamic marriage with a nahar and a dower and so forth. And these people are obviously not committing zina, because they're ignorant of the rules of Islam, and they intended to marry publicly, and that's why they weren't trying to have boyfriend and girlfriend, they went to a court to register it. But because they did not understand the Islamic religion, and therefore there's no harm in that whatsoever. We shouldn't, as sometimes happens when we hear of our brother and sister doing that, and then we find out that they've been married, you know, people stand up and say, you've been committing zina and so forth, and you have to retake your vow. It's not true. I think this better. The question was you know, it's going to be that message is going to be just going to be a, a servant in the court. It doesn't necessarily be a priest, I don't think. So it's just, just, it's just a civil employee. I mean, he could be a Muslim, a Jew, a Christian, a Hindu, you know, an atheist. It doesn't necessarily, you know, mean anything, you know. However, though, the point is, is that all that does is just their civil marriage. In the sense that you registered that marriage according to the laws of that state. You know, that's all it is. And this is just something to protect, you know, both parties because you're in a non-Muslim country and you might sometimes have to prove your marriage to uh, the sister. But the point is, is that the brother and sister who wants to apply the religion of Islam should get married Islamically, as I explained, the marriage process is. And that's it. But this thing doesn't, you know, I mean, forego that. I don't, I, mean, I don't know how it, I think it's different from state to state and locality to locality. I would imagine that in most areas, it really wouldn't be a Christian vow. It just would be a secular uh, vow where they say that, you know, raise your right hand, you know, are you so-and-so, and are you so-and-so, and do you solemnly swear that you're going to marry, you know, so-and-so, and that you, you know, marry so-and-so, and that you, you know, do this out of willfully and not out of coercion, and then that's it. I don't think necessarily they would have, in most states, you know, Christian vows. Now, if it does occur, I want to stress, you know.
caused by registering that marriage, and they should avoid that. And this is something which is, might be subjective from case to case, but they might be able to bring out a general, you know, rule to it. And likewise, I mean, if, if somebody wants to protect himself, I mean, you can make some sort of agreement, you know what I'm saying? I'm sure that maybe most, you know, jurisdictions would uh, witness that, you know, in case of divorce or death or, you know, um, or anything, that we would be governed by, you know, the laws of the Islamic religion by an Islamic arbitrator at a certain mosque. And in those cases, I'm sure this would be binding, you know. No one knows what. This needs some further investigation, you know. So, this is one of the many problems that Muslims face when they live amongst non-Muslims. I think that if they are ignorant of the rules of Islam, in the sense that many Muslims you find, okay, get married in court, alright, they don't intend to make zina, you know, to have illicit sex outside of marriage. Both of them are, you know, chaste. They don't, you know, the first thing from their mind. So they think, because of the ignorance of the Islamic religion, that by getting married in court, that's sufficient. You know, you cannot then say that these people have committed zina. Okay, because they're ignorant of this. So they might not say a dowry, she might not have a, a guardian, Okay, they might not have two witnesses, you might just have the magistrate. Okay, you cannot say that these people have committed zina. You know, it's different from a person and a lady, you know what I'm saying, living together and they know that it's a sin and so forth, okay. They try to get married, this is the extent of their knowledge of Islam. They might be sinful for not seeking knowledge fully before they do that, that, you know, that, that might be held responsible in front of Allah. But the point is they cannot be said to be committed zina, okay. Uh, a sex outside of marriage and have that type of sin. So, but at the same time, for those who are knowledgeable, you know, then they should not just suffice with this marriage in the court. Okay, and this thing is only a thing of convenience to protect themselves because they live in the lands of the non-Muslims and there's not a Islamic system which can, you know, have courts and so forth to protect their rights, you know, either as a party or individually in case of divorce or death or whatever, you know. So, so in this case, you know, if the person registers that marriage, that's fine. But he needs to then make sure that he gets married Islamically, you know, in a court, uh, in a, you know, in a... And as I said, the Islamic message does not have an imam. Islamic marriage does not have to have an imam. All has to, as I mentioned, just the husband and the, her guardian and an agreement upon a dowry and two witnesses, and that's it. And both parties are in agreement to that. Now, they don't recognize the marriage in most jurisdictions unless an imam signs it. So in this case, you're sort of forced to go to an imam, but it's not a condition. So there is no need to offer a name, like the Bhagavad Gita or Jephthah Mushuk. I'm not sure what it would look like, but it's not a name. No, no, I mean, it's similar to mention the speech of need which is all place belongs to a lot, and this is something that one says all needs and merits. So for instance, uh, if one is, you know, gathering and he starts off with that, this is a sunnah of the Prophet and his companions, so there's no harm in doing that. And in the sense that somebody does not do that, and therefore there is no, the marriage is not, you know, weak or, you know, they just missed something which is just a recommended practice. And like that, as far as saying Fatiha, 
this is also an innovation. There's no thing to say Fatiha, you know. And, and if you want to know more about there's the etiquette of the uh, the marriage of the Quran Sunnah by Sheikh Al-Zani, which has been translated to English. I'm sure the brothers have copies in Quran, they can share a copy. For those brothers who are in charge of communities or who would like to get married, or who are going to America and they want to make sure to tell people what the Sunnah is, they can use that as a reference in a lot of space. Let's take this last question from the brother and then we have to throw some shots. Okay, um, yeah, that's, that's correct. I, it's one of the days I, I, I neglected to mention in, in the hadith, in my, in my discussion, that there's a hadith where the Prophet forbade us to single out Friday as a day of fasting, and that is unless we fast a day before it or a day after that. That's because Friday is our weekly Eid. Just like we have two yearly Eids, Friday is also like a weekly Eid for us, a day of celebration. Therefore, one cannot single that day out in fasting, but he must either fast the day before that or after that. Unless that day is one of the days in which a other type of fast falls, like let's say the 10th of Muharram, the idea of Ashura, let's say that falls on a Friday, then it's okay that you know, you fast that day, even though the Sunnah is to fast the day before that or a day after that. And let's say, uh, for instance, the, um, the fast of the day of Arafah. Let's say Arafah falls on a Friday. So therefore, if you just fasted that Friday, there's no harm in that. You know. Even though if you wanted to fast the day before that, then that's okay. And a lot of those best are kind of 